And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where the trolls just don't want to be revealed, do they? Uh, I've just been tracking what's been happening on the internet with the whole, do you call it doxing when you start revealing people's pictures? But at least we get to see who, who the characters are behind some of these accounts. Because one thing in 2022 that we should all emphasize is accountability. I actually don't care if you don't have a picture. So, for example, I think Rakeem Noble's Twitter profile is Box Story. But we all know Rakeem Noble. And he doesn't hide the fact that he's the guy behind it. And so what that means is at least he's accountable somewhere. He's at the events. He's been in the sport a long time. He knows the sport. But everything he writes, he stands behind and he's accountable. I think for too long, people have been allowed to make life miserable for others while hiding behind anonymous accounts. That I don't agree with. I don't know how you... I don't even know how you, you would do that as Twitter, how you'd police that. But you should be able to to make these things an issue because the trolling has to stop next year. One thing I'm trying to do for 2022 is just either be more positive or say nothing. You know, apart from my regular targets, I think, you know, I'm entitled to throw shots at them because it's what the public expect of me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. So the purpose of this episode, really, I just wanted to wrap up the year because I wasn't going to do one until I started to reflect on this year in boxing. I thought to myself, this hasn't been a terrible year. If you think this is the first year of the pandemic and we thought it would be slow, and it's kind of felt slow because there's been far more talk than action. But if you strip all the, the rhetoric and the propaganda and the tweets and all this, that and the other, I think it's been a pretty solid year. You know, if you if you look at the headlines, we've had two fights for undisputed. It seems we're close to one at welterweight. It seems we might be close to one at heavyweight, and we've kind of had all those intervening steps happen this year. We've we've seen Hearn's power decline somewhat, and I think that's a that's a good enabler for the fights that we want to see to actually happen. So I think. In terms of the headlines, I think this has been a really good year. I know there's a lot we can moan about, and we're boxing fans, so we'll always moan. But I think it's been a really, really good year. You know, some people have come back into recognition, like Joe Joe Gallagher, Tony Sims. Um, some guys are growing and enhancing their reputations, like Eddie Lamb, Adam Martin. And it's just when you watch that growth, and you know, I can't can't leave out my man Big Donald Smith, who's now a televised trainer in his own right. And, you know, I don't know if you've been tracking his fitness journey. That man's gone from like 195 kilos to, I don't even know what, but he looks lighter than me right now. So he's dropped at least 70 or 80 kilos in a year. Yeah, let that sink in. You know, so it's been, for me, it's been a year of a lot of highs, man. This has been one of these years I'm going to take a lot of positivity from. And I'm hoping that, you know, we build on that in 2022. I think it just makes sense to start with lightweight, doesn't it? Because that was the division that gave us our first big fight of 2021. So we had Luke Campbell versus Ryan Garcia, which Ryan won with a pretty savage left hook to the body. Uh, poor Luke Campbell. You know, that, that, that seemed to just turn his lights completely off. And that was uh, that Canelo left hook. So you know that the Reynosas had their effect with Ryan Garcia. 
And, you know, remember, he survived the knockdown of them. I think he might have been in the second round to come back and then win. But the tragedy of that was that's all we saw of Ryan Garcia. For for whatever reason, and, you know, we can speculate, but I don't think it's right to do so, he's been unable to step back into the ring for any number of reasons. So, most importantly, we wish him all the best and we hope he comes back bigger, better and stronger because a good Ryan Garcia at 135 enhances the division greatly. But I guess that's symptomatic of where we are with with the lightweights, where we're kind of a step closer, but maybe a step and a half back, if that's even possible, in terms of, you know, how do we get to a point where we know who the man is in this division? If you look at Devin Haney, he he followed up the disappointment that we felt when he fought, you know, uh, Gamboa, who at that point had seen better days, by taking on, um, who was it, Jorge Linares and... Jojo Diaz, and I think that's a solid year. You may not like Haney, you may not think he's the best, he may be this, he may be that. It's a solid year, and it's the kind of matchmaking matchups seem to do for their American fighters, but not their British fighters, because he got matched against guys that he should beat because he's bigger than them and stronger than them. But the names are strong enough and their skill sets are strong enough that they'll still pose him questions. He'll still get hurt, he'll still get wobbled, but he should win the fight. And that that's really good matchmaking. You know, I, I can criticize matchmaking about a lot of things, but the way they've managed Haney this year has been good. And it keeps him lucrative for a unification or an undisputed fight for next year. Now, if you look at Tank Davis, I put him in a similar category. You know, I know he was meant to to fight Rowley's second half of this year, but the Isaac Cruz fight was probably the fight he really needed because he had someone who was really coming to, to take his head off and he hadn't had a chance to prepare for Isaac Cruz. So we got to see, we got to see that Tank can stand there and he can dig it out and his skills hold up as he goes up the weights. As does his power, which was good. I think Cruz had kind of scouted out some of his signature shots and people are going to start to do that to him. But he showed that he can find ways to win. So there's another guy who goes into 2022 with his value enhanced. Does he stay at one? Does he go to 140? Does he stay at 135? Does he go to 130? I don't know. But the world is his oyster in that sense. And I think he's had a, he's had a really, really good year. We saw Loma come back. So Loma came back against Richard Come, pretty much a one-sided beatdown. And you've got to say it politely, I think... Commie's in that, that kind of, how do you put it? Commie's in a space where he's there to be beaten, but you're not going to do it at anything less than 100% of your capability. So Loma needed that fight to show that he was kind of back to something like his best. And so you now he's back in the mix. So you look at him at 135 and you say, okay, does he jump in with Haney? Does he jump in with Tank? I'd like to see him in with Tank, to be honest with you. Um, I don't think... Devin Haney's got that kind of come forward style that would make for an entertaining fight with Loma. So I'm not particularly sold on that. So we've touched on Garcia, we've touched on Tank Davis, we've touched on Devin Haney. Now we've got to talk about the guy who was meant to be one of the original four kings, Teofimo. And you can see the year wait to fight someone that he didn't want to fight in the first place caught up with him. Maybe it was rhetoric, maybe it was the interviews, maybe it was the personal back and forth between the, the parents of both fighters, because obviously they're both very close to their dads and their dads are heavily involved in their careers. 
Maybe it's a combination of all of that. But he, he didn't look himself in that fight. And in doing so, and this comes back to the point, the margin of difference between the guy that wins the fight and the guy that loses the fight is so small. It might boil down to seven fights out of maybe 700. Seven punches out of maybe 700. And that's, they're, the, they're the margins on which these fights are won and lost. And I think Teofimo discovered the hard way that you've got to treat every fight like it's a fight for your life. But what that's done now is that it's just confused everything because now George Cambosas has the belts. So everyone's going to chase him. Devin Haney is saying, oh, look, I'll come to Australia for the belts. You know, Loma's like, I'll come to Australia for the belts. I don't know if Teofimo's accepted the defeat enough to say, I'll come to Australia. And you know Tank will go anywhere for those belts. So Cambosas has gone from being nowhere a year ago to being the man in the division. Not necessarily that he's the best, but he's got what everyone wants. So what he does next is going to be really interesting. I know he's working with Lou DiBella. Does DiBella have a good enough relationship with Hearn to make that happen? Don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he tried to make something happen with Oscar. So get his in to the zone via Oscar and then go from there. But... That's the one we wait for because I don't, what we don't want at 135 is complexity. We want to keep it to four or five because at the moment, it's, let's, let's run through the names again. Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, Tank Davis, Teofimo Lopez, Vasil Lomachenko, George Kambosos. Six people. We, we're not going to get through the politics enough for all those guys to fight. I'd love that to happen, by the way, because I think that would be a golden era. But we've learned in the sport no one ever gives us what we want, and they don't, definitely don't give us what we deserve. So in terms of 135, I'm less bothered about Undisputed, more bothered about these guys just fighting each other. Let's, let's get the fights going, let's, let, let everyone make their money, and then let's talk about where the belts end up. Because I think, and the hardcores are going to shoot me down for this, I think this Undisputed thing's become a bit of a gimmick now. Because... In most situations, the fight for Undisputed isn't between the two best in the division. Now, we're going to come onto a fight where it was between the two best in the division, but at 135, if there was an Undisputed fight now, it wouldn't be Undisputed because there are so many people with valid disputes about who the man in the division actually is. But let's give, let's give the lightweight guys credit for A, being active, and B, giving us fights that we've enjoyed watching. So I've, I've, like, I can't complain one bit about the action there. We just want more of it and a bit more clarity. We've also, remember, we've also forgotten about, you know, Josh Warrington and Lara in the early part of the year. Now, how do you describe that fight? I think I called it an assassination attempt at the time. And I, and I come back to this point. You have Josh Warrington. You set Josh Warrington up for a fight where I think it was... Zoo can or can zoo, and you're like, okay, we're going to unify the belts, and then we're going to look for the big fights. Then Josh vacates his belt because they want him to fight Kid Galahad, and he's like, no, I want to unify. So he vacates the belt, and there's Lara fights meant to just be a a homecoming fight, like welcome back. I I'll stand by this. Lara had been scouted; they knew what they were bringing to the United Kingdom. I don't think Josh Warrington did. Now, did someone in the camp drop the ball? No idea. Did they accept the fight then realize they're in over their heads? No idea. What I know for 
is Warrington was never in that fight against Lara. And I said it at the time, Josh didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He, he boxed to the same pace and cadence he did against Frampton and Selby and everyone. He was Josh Warrington in that fight. He was a good version of Josh Warrington in that fight. It's just that Lara had his number. We don't know if Lara is special yet because we haven't seen him against anybody else. But we know there's nothing Josh Warrington can do against someone like Mauricio Lara because he has those things that frustrate most fighters. Number one, he has those freakishly long arms. Number two, he has the power. And three, he seems able to find the openings. And so when you watch the first fight, you think, ooh, don't take the rematch. But he takes the rematch, pride in all of that. And then that ends up, I think it was a clash of heads. And so it ends up as a, they call it a technical draw no contest. I can't even remember now. But it's an unsatisfactory end. But here's the thing. He was never going to win that fight either. And so here's what Josh has to sit there and reflect on. He hasn't been in the contest against Mauricio Lara at any point. Is that because he's not good enough? Is it because he's getting old? Are all those long protracted fights that he had on the way up, are they now catching up with him? That's what we need to find out. Do you take another Lara fight? No, you've got to move on at this point. And what does that mean? Does that mean that Warrington fights Kiko Martinez? That seems to be where the energy is now. Put Warrington in with Kiko Martinez, fill out the first direct arena, give Warrington a chance to win back a belt most people feel he deserves to still hold. And then what do you do? Lee Wood, first direct arena. You then turn Leeds back into a cash cow for matchroom. Interesting approach. I wonder if Hearn will take it because you get a feeling that he likes to make people suffer when they leave him before he'll throw you a few crumbs of credibility back. But we're building up a nice, a nice, I don't know, a nice energy around, around featherweight because now you've got, you've got Warrington with a point to prove, Galahad with a point to prove. We've got Lee Wood, and let's, let's congratulate Lee Wood for winning a world title out of nowhere with a pretty dominant performance. And it's easy to keep calling Ben Davis and boxer size Ben, and it's easy to say he's nothing more than a PE teacher. It's easy to say he's nothing more than a YouTube analyst. And there, there are kernels of truth to a lot of these things. But you can't front on the guy's record. I mean, all wins apart from one. So credit to him, credit to Lee Wood for the, for the performance of his life. And at least he now gets to make some good money. So he's got the Conlon fight. So that looks like a healthy six-figure package for him. And then if he wins that, he moves on to fight Warrington and Leeds for another hefty package. So I like seeing boxers make that money that they always dreamt of making. And he's worked for it. So kudos to him. But 126 one, one, featherweight looks really, really good. I'd just love them to throw Isaac Dogbo a bone in this and say, listen, Isaac, man, why don't you come over to the UK for a fight? I don't know what he's done wrong. I don't know why promoters won't touch him. But if you want entertaining fights, he's the sort of guy you could put on a pay-per-view as a co-feature and fans will watch him because he doesn't, he doesn't show up to nick rounds. He shows up to get people out of there. And it's either he goes or they go. And that's what makes him one of the most entertaining British fighters out there. 
But if I want to talk about Ben, jo- ben Davison and give him a big tick in the box, I kind of have to put a big red cross next to a lot of British trainers. Now, we saw what happened when Josh Taylor took on David Evanesian and it... It was, it was men against boys in that ring. It was an absolute hiding and a massacre. Now, the build-up and the gossip was was entertaining, you know, with the behind-the-scenes scuffles and the war of words between the guys. Because remember, this fight took longer to happen than, than it really should have done. But when it did happen, you realize David Avanesian's one hard man. And because he's fundamentally sound in a well-schooled boxer from that perspective, it was hard for Josh, and it comes back to this point. British trainers, are, uh, it happens every year. They get revealed as hoaxes, right? Josh, Josh Kelly's trained by Adam Booth, and some people say Adam Booth's the best trainer this country's had ever. Like, there are people who, who will write that on forums and they'll tweet that. And I've been saying for a long time, this guy's a hoax. All that stuff you see, the, the, the twin pad work, the, 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 the silly head movement that they do, all comes apart when someone's got fundamentals on point and they that's what josh kelly was beaten by he was beaten by fundamentals all that flashy stuff all that trying to run around and throw clever screw shots and all that stuff that you know adam thinks makes you a great boxer doesn't work so he was revealed as a hoax and i'll just say this from a personal perspective i'm glad ellie scottney saw where that was headed and just jumped ship and went to a more serious operation i can't i can't say anything else other than that i think he's a I think he's a hoax. I think Dom Ingle's been revealed as a hoax as well. Like When Kell Brook fought Terence Crawford, it was hurtful to see. And it was also hurtful to hear in the aftermath. Kell being honest and Kell saying, look, British trainers aren't, they're, they're not teaching. We're not learning what the Americans are learning. So when we encounter it, we don't even know how to deal with it. And Kel's the guy that's been through Dom Ingle, Dave Corwell, John Fuchs. These are all people that, you know, proper boxing people love. They love these guys. They're stalwarts of the British game and all that silly stuff, right? But these guys are useless. A lot of people are training in the sport and they can't deliver top-level performances because they have no idea what it takes to be elite at anything. That's what we're talking about here. The problem with British training at the moment is no one has an idea of what it takes to be elite. At least with Ben Davison, he's gone over to America and said, guys, can you show me what it takes to be elite? Let me see elite. Let me make notes so I can take them back with me. Let me learn from you guys because the people I have in my country are clowns. And that's not everyone. Because let's go back to it. And like, you know, salute to Joe G. He's had his revival. Is he doing things differently? Yeah, they're, they're little things that look different. But I think he's just got a different breed of fighter now. Maybe he's done amazingly well with Tasha Jonas. Um, Paul Butler's looked okay under Joe. So there are guys like Joe who, who are coming back. Tony Sims is back in fashion. And what unites those two guys? Graft. Graft. Because they don't get the creme de la creme. They don't get the most skillful fighters. And I'm not taking shots here when I say this. They don't get the, the guys out the top draw. They don't get the Olympians. Apart from Tasha, obviously. I just shot myself in the foot there. 
But they don't get the Olympians. But what they do is they say, look, I'm going to take what I have here. And I know what will work. Being fit and being strong. Anything we do on top of that is a bonus. But if you're not fit and you're not strong, you're not going to go far. So kudos to them. But there are other trainers who are, who are fans of their fighters and they're teaching this and they're teaching that. And that's why these young guys are coming through now. And I'm always going to support the young guys coming through because it's fresh energy. Like I love, I love seeing what Billy Rumble's doing down in Sitting Bourne with Martin McDonough and so forth. And I expect him to have an even bigger year next year. I can see him, um, what do you call it, understudying to someone. You never know. Shane might say, I need an extra pair of hands. I don't know. But he deserved that because I think he's been class. I feel the same about Bobby, uh, Bobby Militidarius. I can't say his surname. Sorry, Bobby. But he's training Isaac at the moment. Yeah. I had Bobby at double jab as a fighter. Is he a good fighter? Fighting's not his thing. But he was always studious. He always wanted to understand boxing. And maybe that's why he wasn't a good fighter because like, I had to learn the hard way. Boxing's an execution sport. It's really not a thinking sport. But he's a hell of a thinker. And he's done wonders at a Fenway down in Brixton. He's done wonders. And I'm going to, you know, I like to give people credit. It's easy to, to slaughter people. I might slaughter some further on. But I just want to, you know, congratulate all these young guys coming through. Um, Donald Smith, obviously he's my friend, so there's a bias there. But he's coming through with some fresh ideas. But he did his apprenticeship with Tony. So this is what we're starting to see. Crawler's doing his thing up north. So let's see what fresh ideas he brings. These are the young guys we want to see. Get rid of the old guys, man. All these guys who are like 55. Get rid of them. You know, these old guys and all shuffling to the ring like, oh, I've been doing this for years, man and boy. Uh, just move them on. You know, and I also want to salute the, the iBox guys because they seem to just be growing. Like, every Saturday, it seems I'm watching Eddie Lamb. He's, he's eating Matchroom, Box Nation, um, Frank Warren. Doesn't matter, man. Eddie's everywhere, man. That's why I always award him Boxing's Man of the Year. Yeah, every year he's Boxing's Man of the Year because I'm still yet to meet someone speak badly about Eddie, number one. Number two, train any and everyone. Number three, he still loves the game. Still loves it. So I'll always give him that the Boxing's Man of the Year award. That's what I, that should be his Twitter bio, Boxing's Man of the Year. So I just wanted to say that like British boxing is in a good place in terms of the raw materials we have to work with. It's in a bad place in terms of the people who are doing the teaching. And that has to change. Um, I had an exchange with a boxer. I don't want to, to snitch too much Yusuf Kamari. But we were talking about this idea that you know, everyone goes on YouTube, watches Roger Mayweather do the shoulder roll stuff, and then they go out there and they get their fighters to do a shoulder roll. But what they can't do is they can't deconstruct the shoulder roll and go, well, okay, cool, you want a shoulder roll? But let me go through the whole kinetic chain. Where should your back leg be? Where should your front leg be? Where should your left elbow be? Where should your right wrist be? They have no idea. And then they don't really understand when do you apply it? When do you not apply it? Because if you really think about boxing, punches being thrown is somewhere between like, I don't know, 8 to 10% of the action. So if you're majoring on 8 to 10% of a fight, you're ignoring that, that like 90 plus percent, the, the movement, the psychology, the tactics, the angles, the, the geometry, all of that stuff that people aren't trying to learn. 
You know, they don't try and learn because they genuinely think you can learn this stuff in a book and you can't. But, and, and I know this because I remember, you know, before, before I really drifted into coaching and, I, and I'd split my sparring into two things, sparring for ego, sparring for education. So sparring for education is what, what actually works, why and how? So I'd go in, I'd go, right, let me try doing what James Tony does. And I'd get beaten up and I'd go, why didn't it work for me? And then I'd get the feedback and I'd go, oh, okay, so that's why he did this. And, and so you'd tweak it until you could solve those problems. And you realize, actually, to train someone to box like a James Tony or Roberto Duran is really fucking hard. To train someone to box like a Meldrick Taylor, really fucking hard. You can't just learn it on the internet. You've got to understand what it takes to get someone to deliver that. And then to deliver it at a level of a Meldrick Taylor. And I don't think we've resolved that from a coaching perspective. I don't think people are into the, into the detail of it. Whereas they are when it comes to football. Look at football. The terminologies, the low block, um, the high press. They really understand the details. Like You know when you hear about someone like Guardiola and he says, I know where everyone should be at every moment in a game. We don't have that level of detail when it comes to boxing training. Why? Because people assume, that's the word, they assume they know everything. And because there's no like certification process, apart from you get your board like your board thingy, that's not really certification. Like what, to get your UEFA A license is like a year. You don't have that in boxing. You should, because then we'd find out who really wants to do it. Yeah. You commit yourself to a course, online learning, over 12 months. Let's see. But until then, you're going to get these chances and these charlatans. Like, what's that guy's name? The Cuban boxing coach guy. I don't know who he is, but I look at what he teaches and I'm like, it's bullshit. It's just bullshit. And if you buy into that, you're a fool. Because you're being given information with no context. So if you jump all over that Cuban boxing stuff, you're a moron. Now I'll save you the hassle. You're a moron. It doesn't, it doesn't work in this country. It's not going to work unless you get the raw materials they have in Cuba. We do not have that. We do not have their system. They do not have our system. The things don't, they're not interoperable. They really, really aren't. And there are other trainers like that. These guys come over. Um, you know, I know Isaac went through the Jorge Rubio phase. This idea that you're going to teach people to box like Cubans over 12 rounds. <sighs> miss me with that nonsense man you know and other boxers in this country are about to find out that stuff doesn't work man it's all a hoax bread and butter British boxers from when they're young are taught bread and butter boxing don't try and be anything that you're not Joshua find, found this out to his, to his detriment that's why he said fuck staying humble he's tired of losing you know <laughs> And until you guys start being honest about these trainers that you worship and realize that they're hoaxes, this nonsense is going to carry on. But I just want to swing back around to Kell Brook against Terence Crawford because I go back and I, and I, watched, the, I watched the Crawford Porter fight. And okay, he stopped him, but he stopped a 34 year old guy who had been in wars for most of his career. Kell. And Sean Porter were the same age, roughly, when they fought each other in 2014. And Kel had an easier time dealing with Sean Porter than Terence Crawford did. 
And so it just makes you wonder if they just held Kel at that level, that 2014 level, for a few years more, what would he have achieved? It, it, it's sad. You know when, when you see someone getting put down with a jab? They get put down with a jab and that's the ultimate humiliation. I don't, in a boxing ring, getting put down with a jab is the ultimate humiliation. You get a big right hand to the temple and you drop people, understand that. You get a left hook to the body, understand that. A straight right to the solar plexus. Yeah, all right, I get it. But to get put down with a jab? Nah. But some people call that unforgivable. So to see Kel fall that way was, was saddening because he's, he's more talented than that. But I guess it's kudos to Terence Crawford for for proving he, if he's not the man, he's in that discussion at 147. And, you know, now we move on to Kell Brook versus Amir Khan. And I don't know how I feel about that fight. I know I'll probably watch it. But let's hope it's not a shit show. Let's hope that it's at least competitive for a few rounds. I just want to come back and touch on trainers again because the biggest illustration of where Britain is in terms of trainers came in May when Billy Joe Saunders took on Canelo Saunders. Uh, Billy Joe Saunders took on Canelo, Canelo Alvarez, right? And let's go back to what, how the scene was set for that. So Canelo had obviously gone through the Turkish guy. Uh, Av- Yildrim. Yeah, that's his name. Avni Yildrim. And... So you end up in a position now where you're fighting Billy Joe for the WBO and, you know, road to undisputed, as Hearn loves to say. How do you describe the fight? Billy's in it, but he's not winning it, if that makes sense. And I know that people say, yeah, he was doing this, he was doing that. He wasn't winning that fight because at no point was Canelo distressed. Canelo was fine, he was comfortable, and it looked like he was going in second gear. And he could have turned it up. And he started to do that. You know, just before he hit the halfway point in the fight, he started to just turn it up a bit and let Billy know that this is elite level boxing. And we all know what happened in the corner. And let's not drown in the details of it because it's been done to death. If you want a good assessment of it, you, I mean, you'll find that on, on Porky's corner. He, he goes into real depth on that. I just wanted to talk about everything we've heard since. Billy gave one version of a story and it gave the impression of chaos in the corner. Mark Tibbs gave his version almost immediately after the fight. It sounded like chaos in the corner. Ben Davison's given his version. It sounds like chaos in the corner. Now, no matter who you believe in that, what you can all agree on is there was absolute chaos in the corner of a unification fight. A fight that Billy Joe earned millions for. There was chaos in the corner. And don't forget, like, that's the Tibbs bloodline. And you've got Ben in the corner who's meant to be the young up-and-coming trainer. So how do you end up with chaos? You end up with chaos because when you're not an elite trainer, you don't exude that authority. I don't believe you'd have seen that in a, I don't know, Derek James camp. I don't believe you'd have seen that in a Freddie Roach corner. I just don't believe you'd have seen that there would have been a very clear view on who makes the decision and that decision would have been made in, consult, in consultation with the fighter. You'd have even said, look, do you think you can carry on for one more round? Give me one more round. 
or you'd have said, I don't even want you to go out for another round. But it would have been definitive. There would have been no chaos there. And that chaos meant that... And I, I'm not going to say Billy Joe quit because I think Bill could have gone out. That That's that's kind of you know where he comes alive, right? When the pressure's on like that. Could he have gone out there, bobbed and weaved? Would it have been healthy? Don't know. But the way that ended has tarnished his reputation and his legacy, which is a real shame because he was a... He was a rare gem in this country, a guy who could actually, who could actually box in the way he understood boxing. But you never got the impression with Billy that he wanted to be an all-time great. Because he didn't have his, his career has never been like that. There are so many fights he could have taken and he's chosen not to. So many mishaps, missteps, not making weight, not bothering about weight, not doing this, not doing that. And now you look at where he is now, and you go, okay, where does Billy Joe Saunders go now? How bad does he want to do it? Love to see him again. I'm one of those where I'd quite like to see him again. You know, I know John Ryder's got Danny Jacobs, but you put Billy Joe in with the winner of that, hopefully. But it comes back to this point. Mark Tibbs, probably a good trainer probably a guy in the gym who can teach you a lot because he knows a lot. He's got like 80-odd amateur bouts. He knows the sport. His old man knows the sport. But there's an elite level. And when you have a fighter like Billy Joe Saunders, you have to be an elite level trainer. And you have to be able to get Billy Joe into elite level conditioning and get him mentally at an elite level. And Canelo showed what that's all about. And that's... I'll keep coming back to this point, so I hope, I hope I'm not boring you at this point. The elite level is about there being no weak links, no bumps, no creases, nothing. It should all feel like a process. Big time boxing is about a process. I, I was talking to a trainer about this, and I said, once you get to this televised level, you should document everything you have to do. So you should know in fight week, this is the process in fight week. Mondays we do this, Tuesdays we do this, Wednesdays we do this. Until it's second nature, you shouldn't be surprised by anything. It's one of the things I admired about Mayweather. It's one of the things I admire about Canelo now. He never looks surprised by anything. Obviously, apart from the, the situation with Caleb Plant. But even that, he was ready to deal with. But the Canelo-Billy Joe thing, like, that's what happens when you try and control the story. Because if you remember... They were pulling videos down and there was, there was misinformation going out. There was this, there was that. All because we created this culture where you couldn't say someone quit. And they did everything they could to take that off the table. To say, no, 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 we're not going to say he quit. But a lot of people are looking for ways out in boxing even if we ignore Billy Joe a lot of people now it's become a thing that you're not going to fight through the injuries am I against that not necessarily because you've got a life after boxing and I'm tired of seeing people who are punch drunk I'm tired of seeing people who can't see out of one eye and people whose hips are screwed I'm tired of seeing people who who gave too much to a sport that gave them nothing back when it was over so yeah trainers should be doing more compassionate stoppages it's the right thing to do. You know, I, I don't care too much for the fans' desire to see someone starched out 
on a canvas or to see someone beaten to within an inch of their life, I think that's somewhat perverse and weird. I think when someone's in no position to win a fight or no position to be competitive, pull them out. And if the corner won't do it, the ref should do it. That's my attitude. I don't think you need to be slumped on the ropes. I don't think you need to be face down. I don't, you, don't, you don't need to get to that point. We need to be more humane when we look at our fighters. I've just seen the time and look, I'm not going to BS you. And like, I need to go and get some food. So I'm going to call this the end of part one. And then we'll talk about the second half of the year in part two. And, you know, hopefully you'll stick around for that one while I go and get some pizza and reflect on what I want to say about the second half of the year. Take care, guys. See you on the other side.